0: Welcome back everyone. I've been away. I got to spend an entire month in sunny Mexico hanging out with my new grandson. My daughter and her husband live there and I spent each day eating papaya, doing yoga and holding a baby. Yeah, I also made meals and washed the floors and took care of their laundry. It was magical. I look forward to that experience in your life once your kids are grown. It is so worth all the investments you're making now so that later you get to enjoy the fruits of all that hard work. Today's guest on the podcast is someone I'm eager for you to meet. I found out about her work when I was invited to review her brand new book that comes out on August 2nd. Maya Payne Smart is a writer, parent educator, and literacy advocate who has served on the boards of numerous library and literacy organizations. She and her family live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where she serves as affiliated faculty in educational policy and leadership in the College of Education at Marquette University. Her website, mayasmart.com, provides tips and tools for parents to nurture, teach, and advocate for kids on the road to reading. What I loved about Maya's new book called Reading for Our Lives is that her philosophy dovetails beautifully with the values and practices that you already know from Brave Writer. She and I had such a beautiful conversation, and I'm eager for you to tune in. So, pour a cup of tea, sit back, and relax. Introducing Maya Smart. Welcome, Maya. I'm so glad you're on the Brave Writer podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thrilled to chat with you today. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you. I think you've written such a powerful book. Uh, one of the things that struck me immediately was the title, Reading for Our Lives. It sounds like you see reading as life-saving. Would you think that's accurate?
1: Yes, absolutely. So I was named after a writer, after my Angelo, and named my daughter after a writer, Zora Neale Hurston. So, from a very young age in my own household, and I hope my daughter will have a similar experience, have placed huge value on the importance of writing and expressing yourself. And of course, reading the work of others and relating it to your own experiences and learning and growing. It all works together. Reading, writing, thinking, learning.
0: (laughs) It certainly does. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about this namesake of yours. Did you find yourself drawn then to Maya Angelou's writing because of that connection? Did your parents um, share her writing with you?
1: they did so i knew obviously who i was named after and in our home my mom's bookshelf was actually in my bedroom just because of the way the house was laid out so i had access to all of this wonderful literature a lot of it from the 60s and 70s yes.
0: <laughs> black
1: literature so just browsing those spines and flipping through things over the years i got exposed to some poetry and writing that i might not otherwise have come into contact with or felt as connected to as a young person.
0: What a rich literary tradition your parents gave you. That's awesome. Now, a lot of parents have consigned the idea of reading and literacy to the classroom. Of course, you are here on a podcast that's dedicated to parents who actually have taken on that job themselves. And for a lot of our home educators in our audience, Teaching their kids to read is the biggest and scariest challenge of those early years of home education. And I'm wondering, um, when you wrote this book, you didn't write it for teachers in the classroom, I think in part because you focus on such young ages and you know that those children are mostly with parents. But what uniquely suits a parent to being that introduction to literacy? I, I thought it might inspire and encourage our audience to hear you speak on that.
1: When I became a mother, I was not thinking about teaching my child to read at all. I thought that she would learn through immersion. I thought that I learned just by being surrounded by books and seeing my parents read and them reading to me. But what I discovered when she was young through reading news articles about disparities and reading outcomes was that there is a lot that happens prior to school that sets kids up for success. So if kids can be labeled behind in some schools at kindergarten entry, then clearly there are things parents can do and should do prior. to that point, so I really just got curious about, well, what would those things be? And then also given my interest in temperate temperament, and also given my interest in temperament, what things would I actually do (laughs) consistently? Because every parent isn't cut out to work through some elaborate curriculum. Some of us are more interested in some parts of reading instruction than others. And some of us will do things that contribute a great deal to reading, but we don't recognize it as instruction at all.
0: That makes really good sense. What do you think are some of the misconceptions parents have about teaching their kids to read or misconceptions they hold that they're not even aware they hold them?
1: I think that so many of the messages that are targeted at parents are book-centric. Mm. And children's literature is so rich and so wonderful. I've been a children's book reviewer and post reviews regularly on my website. But reading doesn't start with books. Mm. Reading, I discovered through all of the research for this book, really starts with conversation and the nurturing back and forth exchanges that parents have with babies and toddlers and preschool preschoolers. So long before kids can even know what a book is or recognize, the difference between a letter or a number, you're kind of laying that foundation for reading through all the other things that you're doing on a daily basis, especially talk.
0: Yes. I I love that you say that for those who are regulars here at the Brave Writer podcast, you know that I talk a lot about how the greatest percentage of our reading and writing life is made up in conversation. We call them big, juicy conversations. Uh, that the vocabulary building, the understanding of syntax, the experience of self-expression is built first through conversation, which I just loved seeing that that was in your book. Um, You have these six levers that a parent can pull to facilitate that great language-rich pre-reading context. And I wondered if you'd be open to just taking them one at a time. We don't have to give away all the goods that are inside your amazing book that I want everyone to buy, but I would love it if you could sort of tease us with an overview. Um, That first lever then is conversation, the one that you just highlighted. Tell us a little bit about how conversation contributes to literacy.
1: Absolutely. So you touched on it a bit. with I love your phrase, big, juicy conversation. It's so rich. And as you mentioned, through conversation, you're literally giving your child words. (laughs) You're giving them vocabulary. You're giving them descriptions and words and labels for the things in their environment and the emotions they're feeling and things in books and so forth. So you're giving them words through conversation. But through that taking turns, you saying something, them responding, you responding, through those exchanges, you're building their brain function, and the um, brain structure as well. So that really is the foundation that will support so many things, even IQ years later. So one thing when it comes to big juicy conversations, you can I can imagine having deep debates and conversations with my 10-year-old. I don't have to imagine, I can remember because <laughs> we've had some as recently as yesterday. But even with babies, I think we should aspire to have real conversation, even when they're pre-verbal, even before they say words. We just, as parents, have to recognize that those coups and those babbles are how they're participating in the conversation. So with the, the talk lever in the book, I'm just talking about raising parents' awareness of how they're addressing their child and listening for the child's verbal responses and gestures and their eye gaze, even to just really engage in that duet that builds their brain function and structure. Oh my gosh. I,
0: I loved, I just got to jump in here. I love the idea of a duet, right? Like, so anyone who's played piano or has sung in collaboration and harmony, uh, it is a collaborative outcome right? A lot of times, I think when we think about education, we think about solo performance. This child is being assessed for what they can do without any help from anyone. And for some reason, that's what we believe is necessary for reading and writing. And yet for things like tying shoes, learning to ride a bike, um, making food in the kitchen, the parent is a full part partaking practitioner with the child. It is a duet. It's all hands on the piano at the same time. And so I love this idea that even with a baby, you are in this duet. Um, I just returned from Mexico, Maya. My daughter is married to a Mexican man, and they just had a baby. And they're both speaking English and Spanish to this newborn, right? And the first thing that stood out to me is that my son-in-law would hold his little son and he, he, the language for saying, how are you or what's going on is que pasa. But in Spanish to his baby, he said, que pasa, because it's baby talk in Spanish. And of course, it just tickled me to realize that in every language, we have a way of speaking that is uniquely tailored to an infant. It's, it's a way that the parent structures the language and their tone of voice and their facial expressions to coax a smile, a reaction, a bug eyes, a little jerk of the hands. It it blew me away. And so then every time I held him, I'd be like, Kipasha, even though, you know, that's not my language. So I love this. I, I love that you brought up babies. It's such a fresh experience for me.
1: Absolutely. And then when you're in that duet or the back and forth exchanges, you're really building a relationship. And this is what I'm hearing when you're talking about the way he held the baby. So it wasn't just the words that he spoke to his son. It was this whole dynamic that includes physical touch and eye contact, I'm sure, and all of these things. And all of that adds up to more enjoyable parenting. I think there are a lot of aspects of parenting that can be stressful, particularly with newborns, because if it's your first child, you don't know what you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) There are so many unknowns. So I hope also that that talk section of the book will inspire every parent who reads it or hears it in the audiobook or hears about it from a friend to feel confident that the language you speak, whether it's English or whatever, is a strength and that you should share that with the child and that if you focus on the back and forth exchange, you're doing so many things right on so many levels that you're setting them up for success. Oh, that's awesome. The second lever in the book that I mentioned for parents, ability to impact children's later reading success is reading. And I feel like that's the one that people hear about the most. <laughs> yes. So, so I intentionally put it second on the list because I think for many people talk will come first. It's you can do it at any time without any book present or anything. But reading books it's so magical. <laughs> and for anyone who loves books or has memories of their parents reading to them or of sitting in a storytime circle in a classroom or a library, again, you're getting all that vocabulary. In many cases, you're getting transported to different locations and seeing experiences that you personally haven't had. So it's just this really um expansive medium for learning and growing with children. And I think it's really easy for parents to access books through their public library and to read also just the things that they have around the house so I talk about signage in your neighborhood or labels on clothing or signs or art or so all of that constitutes reading and that's something I encourage but since it's since it's advice that's so widely given, I didn't put it first, but I didn't want to skip over it altogether because it is so important. And particularly as kids get older, you can use books to teach different skills.
0: Yeah. In fact, um, in my book that just came out, Raising Critical Thinkers, I dedicate an entire chapter to reading, um, reading everything that isn't words on a page. So I talk about how children are building the ability to read facial expressions, to read intonation, to read symbols, like which is the women's bathroom and which is the men's bathroom, right? Like what are all of those pieces of reading that we sometimes don't credit our children for successfully decoding. And for kids who struggle with reading, my youngest child didn't read till she was almost 10, uh, I wanted to point out to her all the ways that she was already reading and that this final step of decoding the alphabet in all these varieties of fonts, not an easy thing for children, uh, that she actually had the tools and the skills. They just hadn't clicked into place quite yet. And then, of course, once she did, she read like a champ. But there is this sort of... um, we tend to think of literacy as only reading words, right, using alphabets. But there is, as you said, uh, symbolic reading and decoding that we're doing every day, all
1: day, right? Absolutely. And when you read cover to cover or talk about the symbols and other things that they're reading in their space, those are just other opportunities for conversation. So I think often of reading as a, as a point of departure for those big, juicy conversations you rec- you referenced earlier.
0: I love that. So your third lever is explicit teaching of reading, correct?
1: Correct. And so this is something that I learned not from personal experience when my daughter was in the age range that the book focuses on. This is something I learned from research. And there were so many times when I would read a study and learn something and think, oh, I wish I had done that, or it would have been so easy for me to do that. So part of the my blog, my website, and also the book is sharing it with other people. <laughs> so hopefully more people get the information and time to do the things. So for example, one of the things I talk about teaching in the book, is um, how you teach letter names, shapes, and sounds. Thought did not occur to me to have any conversations with my daughter about how letters are actually formed. But it's so simple to talk about the components of all the letters are just made from lines, curves, dots. Yes! <laughs> that's, that's pretty much it. So once, <laughs> once we have that epiphany, it was a big, it's so simple, but so easily overlooked. <laughs> this because is- as an adult, <laughs> This is the moment.
0: Yes. This is the moment when, I mean, I already was connecting with everything that you wrote, but in Brave Writer, that is literally what I discovered sort of just on my own, not even in research. I'm like punctuation, dots, curves, and lines alphabet, dots, curves, and lines. And once I sort of saw it, it's like you can't unsee it again. And if we can let our kids in on that, then they don't feel like it's quite such a big milestone. I loved when you said that in the book. It just really, oh, it's validating.
1: Yes, because there are just so many things that are um, treated as if they're mysterious. (laughs) And it goes to this issue of sort of the line between what's your role? What do you do as a parent? And what should be left to schools, and then for parents who are homeschooling, it's like the lines are even more blurred. Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> but I think many of us think that letter instruction is—that's something the teacher does when they get there in that you know formal building off of the yellow school bus or whatever the situation may be. But for many kids, uh, probably most, if not all, if a parent sort of gently points these things out over time from when they're little, it's so much easier for them to mm. be ready to grasp the classroom content is once they arrive in a classroom with 20, 26, 32, depending on which classroom it is, <laughs> students, all of those students have a different understanding of letters. And it's really challenging for a teacher to teach the specific things that each child needs. But you're also just learning about how to be in school, how to be in a classroom, how to be away from home, all those things.
0: <laughs> right. So that's one of the benefits uh, for home education is that you can tailor these experiences to your children. You've also got so much time. I loved how you talked about using time that is available to you in your regular life, that this isn't some dedicated instructional time on top of a busy and hard day of school. It's actually through the byways and highways of your own family dynamic. Um, Your fourth lever then is connecting. Tell me about that.
1: And so connecting, similar to the other things we've discussed, these are connections that you have in everyday life. These are connections with friends and family and librarians and just starting to think of people as literacy resources, even... Parents of older children are incredible fonts <laughs> um, of wisdom, maybe not necessarily for teaching the specifics of reading instruction, but they might be able to give you some great ideas about schools, about story times, about play groups, about all kinds of resources in your community. So I just wanted to, my book is about literacy, but I just wanted to make that point to parents that look around and see who you're connected to and get in the habit of asking questions.
0: Beautiful. So tell us about Lever 5, budgeting.
1: So here's another, along with the fact that letters are made up of lines, dots, and curves, which (laughs) was for every reason really impactful for me when I discovered that, how to talk about it. (laughs) In addition to that, the other thing that really blew my mind when it comes to reading success is how much people spend on private tutoring. And this, I started digging into that research prior to COVID. So there's just this vast body of industry reports and things that are documenting how it's a growing industry. And there are all these franchises and they're um, providing services for younger and younger children. And so it was obvious to me that many people doubted traditional schools' ability to teach their child to read. So even prior to kindergarten, people were paying for tutors to do it. It also indicated to me that parents doubted their own confidence to teach what kids need. So I mentioned in the book budgeting as a lever because that is a way that some people get reading, positive reading outcomes for their kids or paying for a private school or paying for some other sort of program. But I also wanted to highlight that choices every day consumer choices we make, like going to a museum or going to an amusement park, that those are also ways that we can invest in our children. I'm not saying don't go to an amusement park. <laughs> when you're there, talk about the signage and point out all the other things yes! we talked about. But just, again, just raising parents' awareness that there, there are different ways to get the result and how you spend your money reflects your priorities and, um, just the, the insights that you have about how to get the result you want.
0: So are you knee deep in planning? I know for me that July and August are always the months where I devote so much energy to preparing for the coming school year. That's why I'm really excited that my new writing manual, Growing Brave Writers, is available. It is now published and you can purchase it and use it for this coming school year. Why is that a big deal? Well, I thought a lot about you while I was writing it. Because here's the thing. When I've looked at other writing programs, so many of them focus on what to write, but they don't teach your children how to write. And that's a problem. Let me give you an example. One of the writing manuals that I evaluated years and years ago started with the descriptive paragraph as the assignment. They had a nice little sample paragraph on the page and then a bunch of criteria for the child about what they needed to include in their paragraph. So they included things like, the paragraph should be four to six sentences. There should be four points and these should appeal to our five senses. Be sure to include a topic sentence and a clincher. You know, that kind of thing. And the student was then supposed to read the model, read the criteria, and produce in one go a paragraph that included all those features. What a lot of parents told me was that when their kids heard all that information, their first comment back to the parent was, I don't know what to write. I don't know what to say. And the parent would feel frustrated, right? Because the criteria was clear. How could the child not know what to write after such good criteria? But the truth of the matter is, when we're given very specific directions before we start writing, it shuts off the tap to our creativity. In other words, when we have a big list of criteria, we can't turn inward and find the vocabulary, insights, and experiences that we want to put into the paragraph because we're too busy managing the expectations of the directions. So you may have noticed this. Your kid will tell you all kinds of interesting detail about a video game or a sport they're playing. And then when you ask them to go to write and you give them the directions, what you get back is, I love video games. They're really fun. I beat a level. I want to beat the next level. I hope I get to play tomorrow. Right? It's just wooden, flat-footed, because they don't get to write about all the detail for fear of not meeting the criteria. In Growing Brave Writers, we focus instead on the how of writing. How do kids get access to their really quirky, wonderful, sometimes funny, sometimes insightful thoughts? What are the processes that writers use to engage with the material? We worry about form, but that comes after we generate the ideas. It comes after we've got words on the page. And until kids get comfortable getting those words out, They won't be able to write a powerful, interesting-to-read piece of writing. So Growing Brave Writers gives you coaching material in each chapter, just a few pages, and then it gives you a specific activity that is designed to teach your children the writing process. There is a checklist for self-esteem so you can make sure that you do all the things that you need to do in that chapter. There's even a word bank and a narrative sketch sample to help you see what skills your children are learning using these various methods. And all of this is packaged in a PDF file that you can either read on your laptop or your iPad, no problem, or you can get it printed through our partner, the Homeschool Printing Company. They've got an actual link that is for Brave Writer purchases specifically, and you can order a print version from them and go to the head of the line when you do. So all of this will be in the show notes, but Growing Brave Writers is unlike any other product that you will see about writing. It's liberating, it is practical, and it's effective. And I really hope that you'll try it out and tell me what you think. Of course, we support all of our programs if you are a member of our membership community, Brave Learner Home, we will be in there having all kinds of trainings over the course of the year. If you're not in there yet, make sure you go to bravewriter.com slash special dash offer in order to learn more about how to become a member of Brave Learner Home. We will have a link in the show notes to Growing Brave Writers, so you can make that purchase now. And I look forward to seeing the fruits of all the beautiful writing your kids are going to do this year. Now, let's get back to Maya Smart and this wonderful interview and look at how to facilitate reading in our families. And then finally, and I found this one to be the most powerful of the six, is advocacy. Advocacy as a lever
1: to helping your child Gain literacy in their earliest years. I think as you're a parent going through this journey, and I only have one child, so I imagine if you have multiple children, and you can speak to this, each child walks a different path.
0: Yes, and you
1: sort of feel the limits of um, your ability to help them along the path at different points and different times. So for some parents. Um, It might be that their school doesn't offer high-quality reading instruction. They've done all that they personally know to do, but they also see that, you know, maybe they have outdated books in the school or whatever the issue may be. So I think when we start to feel run up against some of those barriers, that can be um, an alert that we should advocate for the support that we need. Because if we are needing those things, other people also are. So in my personal case, I joined the board of a school that my daughter attended at one point, and I took it as my job just to ask questions about reading instruction. (laughs) And so I can say now, all these years later, I recently talked with the former principal of that school, and because of those questions and other things in her own journey and hearing about reading words and all of that kind of stuff, she's really refined her understanding of how reading skills are developed. Mm -hmm. And so I'm proud of the contribution I made of like just keeping reading high on the agenda and meetings and policy discussions for that school.
0: Yeah, I think. um, So if I translate that for home educators, I, I see two sides to it. One is to actually advocate in your community for good schools, um, because not everyone can homeschool. Uh, Brave riders supports an organization called Summer Camp Reading, which provides extra support for kids who aren't getting good reading instruction in the third grade in Cincinnati, in the, um, the city school district. And that has been a way that we could participate in the public school advocacy for great literacy for all of our children uh, in our city. But then the second way is to remember that when you do have your own children and you are fully responsible and they aren't in school, it's okay to admit that they have needs. It's very easy to pretend away a problem that is nagging at you, to think in your own heart and mind, if I expose that my child isn't reading yet or isn't reading well, it's somehow a knock on homeschooling, so therefore I've got to pretend that it's not bothering me. The number one responsibility you have to your child is to be their advocate. So when your child shows learning challenges or is struggling with the reading materials you have, um, using this connecting and budgeting as two of your levers and teaching um, to help you find the resources you need for that unique child. And uh, I've shared on other podcasts, but I've solved that five different ways with five different children. So you're absolutely right about that. For me, this is a nice transition then to those language delays and learning challenges that a lot of students have in reading. So they're given a certain method of instruction and it's not working for them. What do you have to say to parents who are starting to detect and how do they know it's a problem and not just ordinary growth and development and the parent is just too impatient to wait it out?
1: I'd like to recommend that people use something I call the GPS framework. Um, which is just something I made up, but I like acronyms, but the G is for guidelines. The P is for your personal observations, and then the S is for specialists. So I think it can be a lot of parents are just nervous about where their child is relative to other children. And you saw this in in COVID a lot because of the isolation. Oh my gosh. In some cases, there weren't play dates. There weren't other opportunities to see your four-year-old with other four-year-olds. And then when you did Maybe there were um, diff- just differences, and it's hard for parents, or it's easy for parents to call differences delays. Yes, um, true. Like, and so you always have to ask relative to what. <laughs> so I recommend that people do get familiar with different um, lists of milestones from the CDC and the American Academy of Pediatrics and other sort of credible sources, but view it just as like a general idea of what's going on with children from age this, to age, that, and just for your personal reference, this is like the, the groundwork. So the G is just the guidelines, the groundwork, so that you're not just in your own mind with nothing to um, measure what you're seeing against. And then I really encourage parents to journal and take notes about what they're seeing with dates, because those sorts of notes are super valuable later when you interact with pediatricians or um, other specialists you may encounter down the road. But I think it's important for parents to value what they see what they hear and what they feel about what's going on with their child. And there are so many specialists who can support you when you suspect that there's an issue. And sometimes they'll tell you, oh, no, this is perfectly fine. But if you still feel like it's an issue, continue to monitor, continue to journal, continue to keep your own notes. There are a lot of resources that families have available to them even prior to school entry. I've talked to parents who since there was an issue, they talked to their pediatrician and they were able to get funding through schools and other um, public sources for speech therapy, for example, and other things.
0: Yeah. In fact, uh, my middle child, Jacob, had a speech impediment and we were homeschoolers and he took advantage of the public schools speech therapy. And because he was in that context for speech therapy, he read early. the the phonics, the phonemic awareness that was happening that they were using to teach him to pronounce his words correctly led him to making the reading connection. So that happened even independent of my own efforts as a home educator. So I, I love that recommendation. And just know if you're a homeschooler that the public schools are required to provide you with those resources. So it doesn't matter, you can go into the school and ask them to provide that to you. Uh, one of the humorous side notes about that is Jacob felt special in the family because he was the only child who got to go to school. So <laughs> I would drive him, you know, twice a week to this speech therapy and the therapist loved him because he didn't know that that made him weird because he wasn't in a classroom being taken out. So he would just trot in there every day, full of his self-esteem, you know,
1: <laughs> and got <laughs> full benefit.
0: That? Yeah, it was it was really actually wonderful for him. Uh, I involved some specialists with my other kids. One of my children has dysgraphia and he took um, language therapy with Rita Savasco from Rooted in Language. We'll link that in the show notes. She's also a business now. Uh, And so, yes, getting outside support when you need it, especially if you detect a problem, is important. I love your suggestion for journaling. And I noticed in your book, you have journaling prompts at the end of each chapter. Is that the reason that you included those?
1: It is. I think that there's so much value to recording things in the moment. And it doesn't have to be on paper. It can be digitally. It can be whatever format is um, works for you. Sometimes you may never re- refer to the notes again, but I feel like just the act of writing aids memory. So there yes. are 85, I could list 85 benefits of, <laughs> of journaling, but those are the, the main ones It helps you remember. It gives you something to share with people who are supporting you, specialists, et cetera. And it's just a good record of your your journey when you're feeling a little nostalgic as your your kid grows. My daughter is now 10. And even in my phone, I snap pictures. She'll look through my camera roll and she'll find pictures of things she wrote years ago. And she's like, why did you take a picture of this? And I was like, it's just a moment in time. It's an artifact of your learning journey that I was a part of.
0: Yeah, uh, that's for sure. And also the other benefit of journaling is, that what is bothering you in April, you can look back and see if it was bothering you in September or if any meaningful progress has been made. A lot of times uh, when you have an entire school year, because it's daily, you don't notice that there's been progress. But if you can have that incremental approach where you look back and think, wow, I forgot that she was struggling with that and look how far she's come. It's a real mood boost. It helps you. Um, so I love that. You say that learning takes
1: time and space. What do you mean by that? I think that there we have kind of a, a cram culture, <laughs> particularly as we get older. And I think also it's related to the pace of technological change yes. where we think we can like hurry up and just, you know, get the information or get the thing or learn the thing, watch a YouTube video and go do the thing. And that's not how learning works. And I think there's a lot of research (laughs) to suggest that there's value to just learning things a little bit at a time. So as a parent, you don't want to kind of trap your child for two hours and drill them in flashcards or whatever the thing is, (laughs) but just find the little casual ways of teaching the things over time.
0: I love that. You have some marvelous techniques for sound awareness, phonological awareness, right? Um, You talked about identifying, blending, segmenting and deleting, and you use the word cupcake as one of your illustrations. I wonder, you know, just pivoting from some of the theory, can you show us some practical um, tactics for this phonological awareness?
1: So I would say that um, big picture phonological awareness is awareness of the sounds within words. So that's a technical term that I picked up from taking a grad school class in the foundations of reading instruction. After I got curious about all this stuff, but it's a it's a funny sounding word that parents aren't introduced to regularly. But I think it's important that we know it. And so within the big under the big umbrella of phonological awareness are things um, like the individual sounds within words, but also um, segments within them and you're we're on a podcast so you can't see me gesturing (laughs) but cupcake for example has um two syllables the cup and the cake and then within that there are a number of sounds there's the sound which we spell with the letter c but phonological awareness and phonemic awareness is just about those sounds like can your child distinguish between that the uh the vowel sound the p and um so forth the long a and cake or You know, the E is silent at the end. But we think the associations of the sounds within words with letters are something that we come to from having exposure to letters. But we gain exposure to the the sounds within words through conversation every day, but also through targeted activities like singing nursery rhymes. Or I talk about um, spoonerisms and pig Latin and other little kind of wordplay verbal games that you do help kids get familiar with those different sounds. And they'll need both that awareness of sounds and the knowledge of letters and print to merge it all into decoding.
0: I loved your comments about early language being nourishing. You use a wide variety of adjectives to describe how to enrich the soil for language to grow. You use child-directed, melodic, loving, repetitive, expressive, and responsive. And you include an emphasis on home language what prompted you to influence how parents express themselves to children? Uh, why did you think we needed those additional instructions? I'm wondering if you noticed a lack in your um, work with parents that somehow they're not being melodic and loving. Like, what did you notice <laughs> and why did you include those words? Yeah.
1: I think it's just helpful for parents to have models or an image of what you should aspire to in this particular area of your relationship, really, with your child. So one of the things that I heard, one of the only things that I heard about speaking to your child in relation to literacy was this idea, oh, talk to them constantly, narrate everything that you're doing, Uh. blah, 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 blah. So it was important for me to list out. It's not just about the parent's output of Words and description and narration as you go through your day. It is about the relationship and the turn taking. So, the responsiveness piece that I emphasize as a part of speech is again just another way to remind parents to take turns to make it a duet. And some of the other characteristics, the melodic speech, there's research about, particularly with a lot of that related to how you speak to newborns and infants, that they're more responsive. They pay more attention when words are. Directed to specifically to them as opposed to thinking that a baby might learn just from hearing you in conversation with someone else. So I think so much of teaching when we're trying to teach our kids, or if we're writing a how-to book (laughs) to teach other parents is making the implicit explicit. So you know that you need to talk to your child. Well, what does that sound like? How frequent in it? What's the quantity? So any bullet points that i could offer parents on what that language nutrition sounds like is what i tried to include in the book
0: so beautiful i just loved it i loved it so lastly i wanted to talk to you about the radical and subversive power of reading your chapter called l is for liberation really spoke to me you included the history in the united states that white landowners actively suppress literacy among enslaved people. And I wondered if you could just speak more to the importance of literacy as being a value in all our communities and how it provides access to power.
1: That was actually the first chapter that I wrote. So I had an idea for the book and it took many forms in my mind. At one point, it was 101 ways to raise a reader. And then I realized that no one really wants 101 ways (laughs) to, to do anything. You want kind of a handful of effective ones that you can remember. But I was really, and I told you earlier about just the, how much I learned about letters and teaching letters and sounds and shapes and names and so forth. So I started the, that was the sample chapter in the book proposal. And I was sort of torn in writing the book between focusing on how poor reading achievement is among certain demographics Mm. within our communities and why that is and what we should do about it and just teaching the things that parents need to know. So that chapter is an interesting one and one of my favorite ones because I think it gets at both. It keeps the focus on teaching the letters, but it explains why, historically, there are reasons why some people haven't gotten the knowledge.
0: Yes, yes. And reading is, um, it is powerful. It gives us not only the opportunity for self-education, but ultimately, it shapes our capacity to write and to express important information and to be read, right? Uh, that's the reciprocity there. We can't know the ideas. We don't have access to them and we can't respond to them if they're being actively withheld from us. We can't organize. We can't create the change that we wish to see. So when you completed this book, what was your overall experience of what you had communicated? What was the chief message that you hoped parents would go home with when they closed that final page?
1: I hope that when parents close the book, they feel really confident in their ability to support their child on this journey. So it is very much a long game. Mm. And the second chapter is kind of devoted to these ages and stages and what's happening at birth and what's happening at this age and that age, all the way through whenever they're a fluent reader at whatever age that may be. As you mentioned, some For some children, it might be 10, it might be eight. But the idea is that parents have an understanding of how the things they do when children are really young contribute to this big goal that every parent has for their child and that they can support that through conversation, through having books, through introducing their children to experiences that introduce them to concepts and vocabulary, their need for science and social studies and whatever else they get into as they age. I found
0: your book incredibly readable. The activities and modeling are so practical. The journal prompts felt like invitations. They didn't feel like homework. It's just a beautifully constructed book and it aligns so well with Brave Writer values and Brave Writer products for those of you who are Brave Writer listeners. Uh, I hope that you'll go get it. Maya, can you tell us where they can buy your book, when it will be published and all the details of how people can find you and follow you?
1: Yes, Reading for Our Lives, a literacy action plan from birth to six will be released on August 2nd. Woohoo! It is, yes, so excited to finally have it in print and for more people to read it, learn from it, implement the ideas and share it with people. It's also available for pre-order now on most major retailer sites. And you can visit my website, slash book for links to all the different places where you can pre-order it.
0: Perfect. And you're on Instagram, aren't you? Yes. On Instagram, I'm Maya Smarty with a Y. <laughs> That's so adorable. <laughs> I totally love that. That's great. We have a big Instagram following, so I'm sure they'll they'll hop on board with you. Thank you so much for being
1: here today. Thank you. One other thing, if I could add, I forgot. If um, If some of your listeners are parents of little ones, preschool age, I am offering a pre-order bonus. So if they purchase a copy of the book, they can submit their receipt at mayasmart.com slash and they'll receive a copy of my summer survival kit, which is 20 pages of playlists and ideas and things to get through the hot summer with young children.
0: Oh, I love that. That's a perfect pre-order bonus. Yes. So I hope people will take advantage of that. Well, thank you, Maya. I'm so glad you were here. Thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation with Maya. I feel like we've got a new friend of Brave Writer, don't you? Be sure to visit her website, mayasmart.com, and pre-order her book. You won't be disappointed. She has such a lovely writing voice. The whole time, I just page turn, page turn, pleasure, pleasure. I felt so satisfied reading her work. Thanks for joining me today. The Brave Writer podcast is produced by Nova Media. Special thanks to team member Jeanette Hall for all that she does to keep this podcast going. We will get back into a regular cadence now that I'm home from Mexico and we are back in our school year season. To keep up to date with me, I'm active on Instagram. You can follow me at Julie Brave Writer. Thanks for being here today. I look forward to supporting you through the next school year. And I'm so glad that you join me each week here on the podcast. I'm Julie Bogart. This is the Brave Writer Podcast. Keep going, think well, I'm rooting for you.